it is noon, so I'm going to go ahead and get started. Um, welcome, everyone. Thank you for attending the Office of Equity and Human Rights' celebration of the 33rd anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Uh, you might know the act was written and um, chiefly sponsored by Iowa's own Tom Harkin. Um, he delivered part of his introductory speech in American Sign Language in honor of his brother, Frank, who was deaf. Uh, so we are honored to have Raymond McCoy Hyten here to present our program today. Raymond Rayma was the first Black woman to serve as the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Commissioner uh, for the Administration on Disabilities. And, uh, she was an anti-bigotry convening fellow with the Center for Anti-Racist Research at Boston University. She's a past recipient of the AT&T Humanity of Connection Award, and her work has been featured in Vice, Time, The Guardian, and USA Today. She's, um, an or she lives on an organic farm in a sanctuary for unwanted creatures in rural Kansas with her wife, her daughter, and um, numerous cats, waterfowl, and a deaf-blind albino Great Dane. So take it away, Rayma. Thank you, Kristen. And hello, Iowa City, uh, city of Iowa City. Hello, Iowa. I, uh, if you don't know who I am, I am a former Iowan. I stepped away from the state uh, a few years ago, but uh, uh, had the, the privilege of serving as uh, the executive director for the Center for Independent Living in Des Moines for several years. Um, and so I, I, I feel that I have a, a real situational awareness of the status of uh, people with disabilities in the state of Iowa. And so when Kristen reached out to me and um, invited me to participate in this event, I was uh, thrilled to have the opportunity to at least virtually return to the state of Iowa. Um, again, my name's Rima McCoy Hyten and uh, she, her pronouns. And uh, this is going to be, for, for many of us, perhaps, uh, a very different conversation about the Americans with Disabilities Act and about disability in general. Um, Americans with Disabilities Act was signed 33 years ago. Um, and so we've had 33 years, we've had over a generation now um, to, to really see the, the impact of this incredibly important legislation in our country. And with that, see um, identified gaps that still exist for people with disabilities in the US. This presentation is all about that. Um, and so without further ado, let's talk about why we're here. Um, we're, we're, the, the, the purpose of this presentation is really to center disability and efforts to address our society. The, place we live in at the municipal, state, and federal level, the gaps that exist, um, and how the disability community historically has um, centered disability advocacy that really ultimately only touches 5% of the disability population. Now, if anybody here uh, works and lives in the disability world, that, that might sound a little bit provocative to you. And so I'm going to be unpacking that during our time together. We're going to talk about why the disability community does that. 
um, and how it actually negatively impacts disability inclusion overall. Some folks say that we've shifted from disability rights movement to the disability carve out movement. Again, that's why we're here. That's why this conversation is happening. And we're gonna talk about ways to begin, at least to ensure that society is operating with a wide enough lens, is casting a wide enough net, so to speak, so that everybody is included, um, including uh, people with disabilities, especially people with disabilities that we might not necessarily think about as being a part of the disability community. It's a huge part of the population. And so um, just want to be really clear because I am talking to, uh, at least from the, the, the list of participants, we've got several folks who work and serve at the municipal level, the city of Iowa City with us. Please understand that this presentation is not intended to encourage anybody here to dismiss any guidance, rules, regulations regarding physical accessibility in public settings. We must comply with any and all rules, regulations, et cetera, at the municipal, state, and federal level regarding accessibility. Please understand, however, that affixing a ramp onto a building, so to speak, is not going to meet the needs of very many people with disabilities, ultimately. This presentation is about just that population of folks. A disclaimer on language. Many of you, especially those of you who work or live in the disability world, are probably used to what's known as person-first language. Person with a disability, person with autism, for instance. Many people who experience personally disability prefer what's known as identity first language, disabled person, autistic person, for instance. I use both interchangeably in the spirit of being inclusive and in recognition of the fact that the disability community is by no stretch of the imagination a monolith. And so let's begin but before we really dive into the nitty gritty, I wanna make sure that we're using terminology that we typically associate with conversations about disability in a, in a way that is grounded in shared language. So we're gonna talk about accessibility, accommodation, and inclusion really quickly. First up, accommodations. So for the purposes of this conversation, many of you might have your own definition for these terms. For the purposes of this conversation, accommodations are all about interventions that are made after the receipt of a formal request. So a reasonable accommodation at the workplace, for instance, or as I've got here, um, a deaf person requesting American Sign Language interpretation at an event that they know otherwise is not gonna have it. That's an accommodation. When we're talking about accessibility, we're talking about ensuring that a space has specific tools available that are going to allow some folks with disabilities to be able to utilize the space. So the, the ramp that is attached to a building, uh, so to speak, is an example of accessibility. And then there's inclusion, which is about at the get-go, at the onset of the creation of an initiative or an organization or prior to the building of a building, 
prioritizing the needs of the widest spectrum of people at that moment and asking critical questions with regards to what do we need to do to ensure that this thing that we are creating in this moment is gonna be as inclusive as, of as many people as possible. And so inclusion is all about baking into um, whatever the initiative is, questions regarding what do we need to do to make sure this is gonna work for as many people as possible, as opposed to creating something and then after it's created saying, shoot, what do we have to do to make sure that the people that currently are not able to utilize this space or participate in this initiative are going to be able to do so. So some of you might be wondering, well, shoot, what should I focus on accommodation? Should I focus on accessibility? Should I focus on inclusion? What should I do? Well, the fact of the matter is, uh, you know, that people with disabilities are the largest marginalized population in Iowa City, in the state of Iowa, in the United States, and on the planet. We cannot anticipate every single disability experience. And so because of that, accommodations are always going to be need to be a necessity in order to ensure that we're meeting the needs of people with disabilities in society. I'm here to tell you that even disability organizations cannot uh, predetermine or, or, you know, psychically intuit the needs of each and every person that come through the door. And so accommodations are just a reality. Um, that said, we really can and should, as members of the society, as stakeholders in the, the place that we live, expect the presence of disabled people. And this presents us with the opportunity to foster a culture of inclusion for everybody. Keeping in mind that not all disabilities are apparent, okay? So for those of you who are, are thinking, well, you know, I, I work in this department and nobody that I work with uses a wheelchair. So there's nobody with a disability here. Not all disabilities are apparent and not all people with disabilities are cognizant of the fact that they have a disability. This should ring true, hopefully, for anybody that's with us this afternoon that works just in the general social services or human services sector. Uh, these are spaces that are awash with people with disabilities that do not present as having a disability or might not themselves recognize that they have one. So a quick uh, rhetorical question for everybody. You don't need to add your answer in the, to the chat or anything. Just sort of think this over. What comes to mind for you when I say person with a disability? So... I did a quick Google search and I Googled person with a disability. This is the first image that comes up for me. For those anybody that's listening along, what we see on the screen right now is a young white male presenting person who is in a wheelchair, a power chair, and is holding the hand of a young white female presenting person um, who could be a, a, a loved one or a caregiver or both. Um, this is the first image that pops up. Now, the reason why I add that image to this presentation will become apparent throughout our time this afternoon. Um, but again, in the interest of wanting to ensure that we are grounded in shared language, 
I am uh, adding a definition for disability here that is um, is is based on the definition of disability that's in the ADA. Sweetie, sorry, I got to do this presentation, okay? And so that definition is a person with a disability is someone who has a physical or mental impairment. And impairment is not necessarily a word that members of the disability community love um, that substantially limits one or more major life activities. So this can include people that have a record, like an official documentation of that quote unquote impairment, even if they do not currently have disability. It also includes individuals who do not have a disability but are regarded as having a disability um, and so on and so forth. So disability, the Americans with Disabilities Act, and today is the 33rd anniversary of it, is a win for everybody. So when disability legislation happens at any level, it is a win for everybody. One, because anybody can become a member of the disability community at any time, um, but, but also uh, in the context of uh, ramps being a matter of convenience for people who may not have a disability, but um, operate a stroller to transport their children, for instance, or utilize a wheeled cart to transport their groceries, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the ADA offers protections for everybody, ultimately. In fact, this is an enormous group of Americans, people who do not define themselves as disabled, uh, people who age into disability, uh, for instance, uh, people who, for whatever reason, temporarily or permanently can't uh, utilize stairs, people who just do not see themselves as being a person with a disability, um, et cetera, et cetera. When people with disabilities win at the legislative level, everybody wins. That's, I think, important to keep in mind when we are thinking about the Americans with Disabilities Act. That said, again, we've had 33 years to critically assess uh, the gaps that remain in spite of this incredibly important legislation. One being the ADA requires protections in either English or American Sign Language. That's it. And so if we're talking about a person with a disability in the US who does not speak English or utilize American Sign Language, that's gonna be a gap. So it's important to remember that in the context of the Americans with Disabilities Act, disability is a legal term only. Um, and because of that, the ADA's definition of disability might be different from your definition of disability. It can differ from uh, the definition of disability depending on what state you're in. The Iowa definition of disability is it basically mirrors the ADA's definition of disability, but it can also differ from Social Security Administration's definition of disability, Department of Labor rules, et cetera, et cetera. So I've got some legislation, federal level legislation um, that is relevant to our conversation because it directly pertains to disability. We've got the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 and several other uh, pieces of, of legislation. Um, and this next page is several additional uh, pieces of relevant federal regulations. 
And I add those to this presentation, not because I want uh, us all to go through each and every one or to memorize them, but to offer um, some, some grounding that will help us to begin to understand how gaps can exist in spite of um, legislation being passed that's meant to provide protections to a marginalized class of people in our country. So with regards to disability legislation in the United States and those, those pieces of legislation and regulations that I just quickly shared with everybody, all written by primarily straight white people who perhaps are under the advisement of disability professionals who are all white, um, but, but also mostly non-disabled as well as cis, straight, um, et cetera, uh, who have some adjacency to what's known as home and community-based services. And I'm gonna talk about home and community-based services here in a moment. And so therefore, they're gonna have what, what we call implicit bias kind of baked into them. Um, and, and so where there's implicit bias, there is you know, unfortunately opportunity for exclusion and marginalization, even when our intention is to be inclusive of people with disabilities in this context. And so just a kind of a, pertinent, relevant side note, uh, if we all just kind of fat, uh, rewind back to the late 80s, uh, when HIV AIDS was a, a hot topic of conversation in our country for very good reason, the Americans with Disabilities Act was also being drafted. And actually, HIV AIDS was almost excluded from the Americans with Disabilities Act. And so as the, the, the people that were crafting the legislation that we know as the Americans with Disabilities Act were doing that, many were concerned that including what back then was known as the quote unquote gay plague would actually jeopardize the bill's passage. And it was disability rights activist Howard Moses, um, who was gay and disabled, who was instrumental in ultimately ensuring that HIV AIDS would be included in the Americans with Disabilities Act. So as I've mentioned, um, anyone can join the disability community at any time. It's a refrain that any, anybody that spent any amount of time in disability spaces hears on a regular basis. That said, um, the disability community and that includes service providers, that includes advocacy organizations, and it includes the people that work and serve in, in both of these entities. We operate, and I am a member of the disability community, we operate as if the default setting for Americans with disabilities is white, heterosexual, male, female, gender presenting, middle class, Christian, and apparently disabled. Um, so people whose disabilities we are able to see with our eyes. And people who access home and community-based services, which is actually only 5% of the disability population. So just to kind of widen the lens in a very intentional manner, so to speak, I've got on the screen images of people with disabilities that 
don't necessarily get included in conversations about disability. And so we've got uh, an individual that appears to be homeless and is pushing a shopping cart. We've got an individual in a wheelchair who's praying at a mosque. We've got an indigenous person in a wheelchair. We've got Questlove of The Roots, who's on the autism spectrum. And then we've got a, a young person with their parent um, and that young person is um, in a juvenile detention facility. And so one in five of us, between one in four and one in five of us in this country experiences a disability. So that's between 20 and 25% of the population. So yeah, the, the number varies based on who you're going to for the number. So Centers for Disease Control says, 25% uh, of, of folks experience a disability. Um, the census indicates that 20% of people experience a disability. So basically between one in four and one in five of us. So 56.7 million people. Only 2.7 million of those folks uses a wheelchair. Um, and only 2.2 million of those 56.7 million people are home and community-based service enrollees. And so given the last statistic that I, statistics that I just shared, there are some questions that I would like to invite you to keep in mind. So including, and very importantly, how does disability show up in our society in ways that we have not necessarily been conditioned to perceive it? Um, how many people in, the US need home and community-based services? How many people with disabilities need services that are going to support them in living independently and successfully in the community, but experience barriers to obtaining those services? Um, and, uh, and, and what are the natural consequences of being a person with a disability who, for whatever reason, is not able to access those services? So I want to run through uh, a quick list of disabilities that are recognized by the Americans with Disabilities Act that we might not necessarily include in our conversations about disability and certainly disabilities that don't require physical accommodations, so to speak, or physical accessibility. So generalized anxiety disorder, substance abuse addiction, attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder, borderline personality disorder, PTSD, complex PTSD, chronic pain, long COVID, that's a biggie in, in our uh, supposedly post-pandemic society. So I mention all of those because the fact of the matter is, is that people with low income backgrounds are actually 11 times more likely to have behavioral, mental illness, and other disorders. And a lot of times we don't see uh, behavioral, mental illness, and other similar type disorders as being disabilities, and they actually are according to the Americans with Disabilities Act. And so what the, what the picture is that, that's trying to be painted is that when you are marginalized by a disability that cannot be seen, the impact is economic, the impact is, it impacts your family, it, it impacts everything. Um, and those points of impact can be hidden in plain sight, so to speak. And so a study was done about a generation ago that showed that 
children um, with disabilities are actually 3.4 times more likely to experience mistreatment than children without disabilities. And this study was done through braiding of data from uh, hospitals, foster care settings, law enforcement agencies, and schools. Between 40 and 80% of incarcerated juveniles have at least one diagnosable behavioral, mental health, or other disability or disorder. This is according to the National Institute on, of Health. So again, we've got um, a large a disproportionate number of people under the age of 18 who are experiencing incarceration who also experience a disability. Is there a correlation there? That's the question. Does that correlation carry on into adulthood? 40% of juvenile offenders transition into becoming adult offenders by the age of 25. According to ACLU, American Civil Liberties Union, incarcerated workers in the United States produce $11 billion in goods and services annually, but receive pennies an hour for prison jobs. So criminal justice issues are a disability issue. If we connect the dots and see the picture, Let's talk quickly about adverse childhood experiences. We're talking, and these are also known as ACEs. These are potentially traumatic events that occur during a person's childhood. So birth to age of 17. So abuse, neglect, experiencing, being witness to violence, abuse, neglect um, in the home, in the community, um, substance abuse problems, mental health problems, either of, of self or observing these things happening, um, instability within the household because of parental separation or household members being incarcerated or institutionalized. Um, ACEs are leaked to legal issues um, and, uh, and, and substance abuse problems, mental health issues. There's a correlation between the trauma we experience in childhood um, and, and the status of our mental health or the status of us as being a person with a disability. And when we're talking about ACEs, we cannot have complete conversations without in being inclusive of race. And so uh, children of different races and ethnicities don't experience ACEs equally. So 61% of black children experience ACEs, 51% of Hispanic children have experienced at least an ACE uh, compared to 40% of white non-Hispanic children and only 23% of Asian non-Hispanic children. So according to uh, First Five California, which is a think tank out in California that, that does a lot of work around uh, poverty, mental illness, and disability, um, there are some factors that can cause and or exacerbate developmental disabilities. And so disabilities that manifest in a person while they are a young person. So usually before the age of 22. So these can include prematurity, low birth weight, uh, exposure to drugs, alcohol, tobacco, poor nutrition, 
please keep in mind that poor nutrition is not necessarily just caused by the choices that a pregnant person is making. It can also be caused by the fact that they live in a food desert and simply do not have access to nutritious food. Um, exposure to high level of environmental toxins. If a person is living in an economically disadvantaged area um, that has a high amount of environmental toxins present, that's going to increase the likelihood that that unborn child or the, that child is going to have exposure to environmental toxins. Um, and then trauma. So trauma can cause developmental disabilities. It can exacerbate developmental disabilities. So I've got here a, a chart that kind of illustrates what disability looks like in various different groups in, in our country. So American Indian, Alaska Native folks, three out of 10 experience a disability, one out of four Black people in the U.S. experience a disability, one out of five white people in the U.S. experience a disability, one in six Native Hawaiian Pacific Islanders and Hispanic folks experience disability, one in 10 uh, Asian folks in the U.S. experience a disability. And the, the thing is, is this is data that pertains to diagnosed disabilities. And so there certainly can be disparities in diagnosis of disability, which leads to the skewing of that data ultimately. Home and community-based services. So before I talk about what they are, let's talk about the demographics. Over half of the folks that are enrolled in home and community-based services are white, 19% are black, 10.5% are Latina, and then all other races are 6.3%, and nearly 10% uh, of HCBS enrollees are of an unknown race or races. What are HCBS and why should you have them in your consciousness? So again, HCBS is an acronym for Home and Community-Based Services. And according to uh, Medicaid, which is the, the federal funder of home and community-based services, states can develop home and community-based service waivers to meet the needs of people who prefer to get long-term services and supports, also known as LTSS, in their home or community rather than in an institutional setting. So I don't know about you, but I don't know of a single person that would prefer not to live in the community. I don't know of anybody that would prefer to live in an institutional setting. Um, and so home and community-based service waivers allow for that. Uh, the default setting for disability service funding in our country is services that are provided in institutional settings. That's why these are called waivers. It waives that default setting, so to speak. Medicaid and HCBS, quick facts. Uh, again, Medicaid is a federal program that is administered at the state level. Um, an individual that applies for Medicaid slash home and community-based services in one state is gonna have to reapply if they need to relocate for whatever reason to another state. Black people use Medicaid's routine medical care benefits at three times the rate of white people. That said, 
There are huge disparities in access to home and community-based services um, for Black people in comparison to white people. The national average for waiting lists for home and community-based services is two years. Currently, there are 665,000 people in the U.S. who are on waiting lists. Um, I'm not sure what the current uh, HCBS waiting lists are for the state of Iowa, but they're always super long. Um, and parental deeming allows for a child with a disability to receive home and community-based services no matter their family's income. And so we, I add this because we typically think about Medicaid as being something for people who experience poverty. Well, thanks to parental deeming, uh, a child with a disability is able to receive home and community-based services no matter their family's income in many states, including Iowa. In 2020, the United States, we, the taxpayers, spent $116 billion on home and community-based services. The most prominent advocates for the disability community are service providers, typically. So, and these service providers are the agencies that receive home and community-based service funding um, and those can include Easter Seals, Goodwill, and the ARC. And you've got Easter Seals, Goodwill, and the ARC um, uh, representation in the state of Iowa. Of the 56 plus million people with disabilities in the US, only 5% have access to home and community-based services. And so as is the case in any instance in our country where access is extremely limited and exclusive, uh, the people who do not have access are disproportionately not white um, and, and poor, and the people who dispropor disproportionately have access are white, and thanks to parental deeming, which I already defined, not necessarily living in poverty. Nearly all research and education pertaining to disability in the U.S., centers the experiences of home and community-based service enrollees. And if we're talking about uh, a, a segment of a population that's only 5%, that means that the remaining 95% of the disability population might not necessarily be represented um, either accurately or at all. So, Let's talk about the stereotypes that exist with regards to Medicaid. We have been conditioned to think about in the context of black people utilizing Medicaid, uh, we, we've been conditioned to see uh, that population as being on welfare, being welfare queens, uh, being people that should just go and get a job, being lazy, et cetera. However, when we think about people with disabilities utilizing Medicaid, the context is almost always vulnerable citizens who deserve support. Why is there a disparity in how the perception of Medicaid um, is, is, is seen in our eyes? Let's look at a state that's not Iowa um, and uh, North Carolina specifically, um, just so that we can not feel like, oh, Rima's hitting too close to home this afternoon. I don't like that. Let's look at what systemic uh, racism looks like um, as far as HCBS in the state of North Carolina. 
North Carolina has a terribly long waiting list for HCBS, seven and 10 years. First come, first served. If a person doesn't know what HCBS is, they're not gonna apply, right? People who do know about home and community-based services tend to be well-connected and have the time and resources that are absolutely necessary in order to engage in the application process for home and community-based services. It can feel, and for anybody here that's the parent um, or, or guardian of a, a child with a disability who happens to be on home and community-based services, you can probably speak to this better than I can. It is practically a part-time job applying for home and community-based services and ensuring that those services are being administered accordingly. So for those of you listening along, I've got a graphic of the state of North Carolina here. And it shows uh, the, the likelihood of receiving waiver services um, in the state of North Carolina. And the reality is, is that what the picture that's painted here is the, the wealthier and the wider the county, the more likely uh, that there's gonna be access to HCBS. And then of course the, the inverse also being true. Um, the, the more poverty stricken, um, racially diverse counties have less access to home and community-based services. That's the state of North Carolina, but we could throw the map of the United States up and the, the, the imagery is going to be shockingly similar. As a result, disabled people of color are actually institutionalized more than white disabled people. Um, the National Institute of Health has conducted research that shows that growth in black and adults, adult Latina nursing homes use may be the result of disparity in access to community-based waivers, home and community-based services. The ADA offers no protections uh, due to race-based disparities in access to disability services and supports. This creates an unfortunate gap that impacts millions of people in our country. Even if we do have access, that doesn't mean that that access is quality. Uh, Long-term services and supports, um, and that, that again includes home and community-based services waivers, um, are highly racially segregated. Here in this day and age, the year 2023, um, these services are racially segregated. Black, indigenous, and people of color have less access to quality care and then report poor quality of life compared to their white counterparts. And so this is an example of what systemic racism looks like in disability spaces. Um, and the thing is, is that trauma and racial systemic racism is a manifestation of trauma. It can cause and it can exacerbate disability. Uh, you know, lack of access to services and supports can exacerbate disability. Again, according to the National Institute on Health, um, they indicate that trauma affects a person's mental and physical health, um, employment, including the maintaining of employment, um, access to education, social functioning. Uh, childhood trauma, so ACEs, for instance, um, 
are associated with greater rates of post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety, antisocial behaviors. These are all um, issues that are disability issues, okay, um, and can lead to self-medicating, uh, you know, uh, uh, alcoholic consumption of, of uh, liquor, uh, substance abuse disorders. You know, these are examples of self-medicating um, exposure to a traumatic event or series of traumatic events um, can activate the stress response in a person um, that can have longitudinal or long-term impacts on a person's mental health and well-being. Traumatized people utilize the emergency room due to a lack of established relationship with a primary care provider um, in a disproportionate manner. Um, Traumatized people can interface with law enforcement due to mental health crises. Traumatized people are a plurality of society's homeless population. Now, I've been gone from the state of Iowa for a few years, but homelessness is, I believe, still a big issue in city of Iowa City. Traumatized people experience institutionalization and over-medication and incarceration Traumatized people, unfortunately, die, die prematurely in comparison to everybody else. So let's talk about Iowa City. Um, a person is quoted in the Spartan Shields, and they said that Iowa City is suffering from a homelessness epidemic. And I've got a graphic here um, that, that highlights poverty in Iowa City versus Davenport. Um, Davenport has a population that is about 30% larger than Iowa City's, um, but 27.6% uh, of Iowa City's population experiences poverty in comparison to 16.6% of Davenport's uh, population. Um, although Davenport is more populated than Iowa City, Iowa City has a 10% higher poverty population. So let's shift from Iowa City to the disability rights movement real quick. This is a, a quotation uh, from a, a uh, report that was pulled together um, and is posted at Independent Living Review and Utilization Board. And it talks about the history of the disability rights movement in the US. From that report, quote, Watching the courage of Rosa Parks as she defiantly rode in the front of a public bus, people with disabilities realize the more immediate challenge of even getting on the bus. So what we have here uh, written into the history of dis the disability rights movement is the bold, if you will, statement that although black people were doing their due diligence to fight for our rights, the more immediate issue was ensuring that people with disabilities uh, were afforded their rights. And if you uh, follow the logic that has been presented in this presentation, the default setting for quote unquote people with disabilities is actually white people. Um, and so what we have here is an example of what is known as centering and derailing, which is what happens when a person who is white in, enters into a conversation about the Black civil rights movement, for instance, and says, what about us? Or our issues are more important. You have it here in Black and right, White. 
So with regards to um, the, the systemic racism that is within the disability rights movement, we've talked about how systemic racism impacts the, the provision and access to services and supports. So let's talk about advocacy real quick. So the caveat of rights is that it's rights are all about making space for populations of people that actually weren't taken into consideration when a government was originally formed in the first place. Historically, the strategy that the disability rights movement has attained to uh, employ to attain legislative advances has actually prioritized giving floor time to people deemed most likely to connect with lawmakers. So this is why you see a lot of children um, with disabilities that are kind of front and center whenever, whenever any kind of advocacy is being done or, or people that are white and have an apparent disability that are front and center. And uh, sorry, I've got, I've got my captions on because I myself am not able to hear and it's messing up my ability to, to see my screen. Ultimately, the, the, the rationale has been that if the people with the most privilege in the disability rights movement work to attain rights that eventually that those efforts will trickle down to the rest of us. And as I like to say, trickle down rights work about as well as trickle down economics do. And I'm not trying to get into uh, any kind of uh, uh, partisan politics type, type things, but there's ample evidence that trickle down economics don't actually work. Um, and hopefully, uh, by next generation, there will be evidence that shows that trickle-down rights don't, do not work either. So systemic racism impacts a lot in disability, the disability world. It impacts research, policy, education, advocacy, advising. Your, you, you who are, are, are participating as, as a person that is listening or watching this presentation, your understanding of, of disability. Um, you've been conditioned to think by the disability community to think about disability in very specific ways. And this presentation is your invitation to kind of widen the lens, so to speak. So disability issues that need more than the Americans with Disabilities Act to address effectively. And again, the Americans with Disabilities Act is an incredible piece of legislation. We've had a generation now, more than a generation actually, to really determine wh where, where are we still experiencing gaps? Where are people with disabilities still experiencing gaps? The preschool to pipeline is a big one. Foster care is another one. And some of these, if not all, perhaps you've never thought about as being disability issues. Food insecurity, police violence, homelessness, systemic racism, obviously, and trauma. I've talked at length about both systemic racism and, and, and trauma. So in addition to incarceration, uh, in, in addition to the preschool to prison pipeline, uh, lack of access to services and supports, uh, as I've already said, can lead to homelessness um, 
and also exploitation, um, something that we're talking about more and more as a society, uh, trafficking specifically, um, which is absolutely a disability issue. Um, but currently, unfortunately, none of these things are prioritized as disability issues. And so those of us who identify as stakeholders are presented with the task of connect, connecting the dots, if you will, so that we can see the picture. And so allow, allow in the instance of trafficking for us to do that here. So a lot of times I, I appreciate that we're talking about trafficking more as a society, but when we think about how the media or Hollywood um, offers treatments of trafficking, typically we are presented with images of young supermodel looking um, white or light complected exotic women um, who you know look like they you know tripped off the runway and fell into trafficking basically that's not necessarily what trafficking looks like in our society it's actually black minors most of them girls who are the majority of juvenile trafficking victims in our country. They represent more than 50% of trafficking victims um, under the age of 18 in the US. Additionally, American Indian, Alaska Native, Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander girls are much more likely to be sexually exploited than their non-Native peers. Um, and then Hispanic minors, Latina minors are also disproportionately impacted by labor trafficking, um, especially. So if we take that data and we braid it with the data that I've shared already, that minors with disabilities are 3.4 times more likely to experience mistreatment, abuse, neglect, exploitation than minors without disabilities. If we connect the dots, so to speak. The picture that manifests is one of a grim reality that multiply marginalized people with disabilities um, are unfortunately disproportionately impacted uh, by exploitation in our country. So we are kind of rounding the end of this presentation, I wanna make sure that there's at least a few minutes left for questions, but I'm also gonna throw my email address into the chat uh, because more often than not, when I do these presentations, people have questions and they don't necessarily want to ask them in a public forum, and that's cool. You are very welcome to send me uh, your question um, to my email address. Let's talk about the how the ADA is being used in this modern day in a, in a way that I find to be troubling um, and it is becoming a trend. So for anybody that's listening along, I've got two screen grabs of news articles, one from Portland, California, and one from Sacramento, California. And what, they, what the news articles indicate is that um, it, instances where the Americans with Disabilities Act is being invoked um, to, to file complaints with regards to homelessness in, in these two municipalities. And so in Portland, a group of disability advocates 
came together and filed a complaint with regards to uh, people who are homeless setting up camp downtown. Um, and the advocate's complaint was that the, the, the camps were creating um, access barriers for people with disabilities, okay? Same story in Sacramento, California. Um, the issue in Portland has been settled, so to speak. Um, the individuals that filed the complaint each get $5,000. Um, and Portland is um, pulling together uh, 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 regulations that are going to impact uh, people who are homeless and their ability to set up camp. Sacramento is pending. Um, there is a class action disability lawsuit same issue. So we've got disability advocates who are invoking the Americans with Disabilities Act um, to, um, to further marginalize people who are homeless. And the fact of the matter is that according to Easter Seals, over 40% of people who are homeless in the United States have a disability. And so what we, what we see here 33 years after uh, the signing of the Americans with Disabilities Act is the Americans with Disabilities Act being used to pit one camp of people with disabilities potentially against another camp of people with disabilities. One of those camps having, in spite of dis having disabilities, access to much more privilege and power than the other group. And my hope is that it was never intended by the people who drafted the Americans with Disabilities Act, that it would be used to further marginalize people with disabilities. Unfortunately, this is what is happening in our country, and I anticipate that this will occur at the municipal level um, in more and more places throughout the US. So for those of you that um, are here on behalf of your employer, or perhaps you are a board member of, of a nonprofit organization, or you work for a corporate entity that is passionate about inclusion to the point of where uh, you have a, a disability advocacy or service provider organization that you consider to be your go-to for disability intel. The question is, does your go-to organization or person for disability intel struggle with their own internal inclusion issues when it comes to racially marginalized people who may or may not have a disability? And I, as a person who has worked with hundreds of disability organizations in the U.S., am here to, to, to tell you that, yes, inclusion is an issue within the disability community. You know, as the disability community strives for inclusion of people with disabilities, there are inclusion gaps within disability organizations that impact people with non-apparent disabilities, people who are gender diverse, people that are racially marginalized, and people who, who identify with one or more of those categories. So, the good news is that you know, more and more people are becoming aware of the fact that many folks who live on the fringes of society, particularly people who are homeless, people who experience incarceration, 
also live on the fringe of the disability community. And, you know, as a result, that's leading to conversations like this one happening, which I am incredibly appreciative to the city of Iowa City for hosting this type of conversation. With that in mind, for anybody that is wondering, my goodness, this is not what I was expecting. My brain is like on overdrive. I am super overstimulated. What on earth can I do about any of this? Well, awareness is, is the first step. And it's a huge step because what we're talking about here is practically, is, is perhaps feels like it's confronting uh, 33 years of conditioning uh, for you or your organization with regards to what disability is. Um, and, and, you know, am I a stakeholder in the disability community? Recognizing that disabled people are not a monolith is huge, um, particularly if we identify one person as a go-to as far as disability intel is concerned. Because the fact of the matter is, is that a white man who uses a wheelchair and a black girl with complex post-traumatic stress disorder, although they both are members of the disability community, they both experience a disability, that white man in the wheelchair is not gonna be able to speak on the experiences of the black girl in the, in the interest of uh, you know, driving disability research or policy, et cetera. In fact, what we've seen is that there is a lot of historical precedent that shows that the white man in the wheelchair is not necessarily gonna deem that black girl's disability experience as being relevant to disability advocacy, okay? Um, although we talk about intersectionality a lot as a society, especially over the past three years since the summer of 2020, at present, we do not necessarily capture data or do research in an intersectional manner. And so until we do that, until we commit to doing that as a society, what we have to do is again, kind of braid the data, connect the dots in order to see the most accurate picture we are able to see. And so again, I know that's a lot of information that I have shared with everybody. Um, and it looks like We've got two minutes and we have one question in the Q&A. So let me have a look at that real quick. Um, would one way to make significant change be to change the default to, from LTSS to HCBS so people wouldn't have to file waivers for home community-based care? Oh, Laura, thank you for asking that question. And my goodness, that would be like, I could die a happy human if that were to happen. We don't have enough time to dive into that particular rabbit hole, but for anybody that's interested in that question, because that, Laura just asked the million dollar question there. My ask is that you Google institutional bias, and that will help you to understand the politics behind why we don't just shift to home and community-based services being the default and long-term services and supports uh, or, or services and supports administered in institutional settings as being the waiver service. Again, 
we could do a whole other hour and city of Iowa City didn't sign on for that. <laughs> and our time is winding down, but I highly recommend institutional bias. Just Google it. Welcome to the rabbit hole. Um, and I'm going to throw my email address into the chat, but I want to thank everybody for participating in this conversation and I'm going to hand it over to Kristen. Thank you so much. This was so informative and we're so glad you are here. And thank you everyone who participated for being with us today. Um, this program will be available on City Channel 4 um, in a few days after cable staff has readied it for um, viewing. And uh, if you wanted to revisit, uh, I know Rima's presented a lot of information. Uh, you could do that on City Channel 4, um, give it about three or four days before it shows up, uh, but it will be there. Uh, again, thank you everyone. Enjoy the rest of your day. <laughs>